Wednesday nights where we'll look to finish the Sermon on the Mount this evening in our overview of the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we want to take a look at uh, the conclusion of this sermon, picking things up in chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus speaking. He said, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. I mean, you can almost feel it, can't you? The descriptive language. And it did not fall. Four, and four is a reason word, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so ends the sermon. The reaction to the sermon is given us in verse 28, and so it was. When Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for this Bible. We thank you for this book that we hold in our hands. We thank you for even in this passage the implications of knowing and obeying the truth of your word. We want you to know that we are thankful that you gave the Bible as a gift to this world and so that we might know you and about you, Lord, that we might enjoy the life that we live. And, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come fresh upon us right now. And for those of us who are very familiar with this passage, would you let the familiar truth impact us once again in a way that's needed. And for those, Lord, who have never heard it not one single time, May this truth impact them in a powerful, wonderful way as well. Your Spirit, He's the teacher. We love it to be so. And teach us and instruct us this morning individually and personally in the privacy of our own hearts, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. By way of introduction to these four verses that we'll look at this morning, I want us to notice several things. And this section of Scripture that we're looking at here, these four verses, of course, worthy of our attention for the simple fact that they're in the Bible and also that they are the wor words of Jesus himself, but also the fact that these verses constitute the final words of the most famous sermon that has ever been taught in human history by the greatest teacher in human history, and that sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. You notice the final four words or five words of the Sermon on the Mount recorded for us in the final sentence of verse 27, and great was its fall. And so Jesus declares, and great was its fall, and immediately the sermon is over. In those days, the teacher, when he taught, he sat and the congregation stood. So at the moment that Jesus concluded the sermon, he immediately stands up and then presumably turns around and begins to walk away, and he has communicated in essence that is the end of my teaching. 
on this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you read any book on sermon preparation, uh, you will be instructed that the finest way to close any kind of a message or Bible study is with an encouragement of some kind, uh, something that is, uh, has some kind of a, uh, a sense of an upbeat note. You never ever are instructed to close a sermon with this kind of, of strength, with this kind of severity. There's a necessity to soften a little bit as you uh, would leave the, the passage with, with the people. And the fact that Jesus left the sermon and ended it with such strength is no accident on his part. I mean, he was a master teacher, measured in every way, not only in his life and his actions, but also by his words. And we know that he's absolute perfection in terms of what it was that he uh, spoke. And so, what he's done here is completely intentional. Clearly, he ends with this great sobering statement concerning this house, which represents a particular kind of life, and great was its fall, and he did so. He didn't add a single word after it because he didn't want to soften it at all. He didn't want to distract from the sobriety of the warning that he's giving here. I think he knows this pretty well because there can be a tendency to be convicted or confronted with some great truth by God that I really need to be confronted with. And yet, if God lets me just squirm a little bit out from under it, I'll disregard the whole thing and figure it's all okay and I'll go on about my business. And Jesus takes and he leaves it just as it is, the full strength and weight of the teaching upon that congregation that was gathered that day. I suppose that a fairly common question that gets asked as people uh, leave any church service as they get into the cars and begin to talk with one another is, what did you think of the sermon today? And uh, that conversation can go in a lot of different directions, I suppose, and I'm glad I'm not in anybody's car uh, to listen to them. But one of the interesting things is that concerning this sermon, we don't have to guess what the reaction of the congregation was to the sermon. We're told plainly in verses 28 and 29, the people, we're told, were left astonished at his teaching. And the Greek word for astonished is very, very strong. It means they were stunned. They were amazed. They were dumbfounded. They were left in a slack-jawed amazement. I mean, they'd never heard teaching like this before. First of all, because of the content of the message, the teaching, what Jesus taught, and then second, because of the authority with which he said those things. They were used to religious leaders quoting one another. It got to a point where they were so paralyzed with what each one thought of one another and getting lost in their head, trying to find some kind of, you know, obscure meaning to everything rather than just taking the Bible for what it says and, and obeying it, 
that what they would do is they would teach something, but not teach it with authority. They would bring some, out a passage and say, well, you know, Rabbi Hillel thinks that it means this. Rabbi uh, Shimei thinks it means this. And they quote a bunch of different scribes. That's what they would do. And then they would leave the people to conclude whatever they wanted concerning the passage. So somebody getting up and speaking with the kind of authority that Jesus spoke with concerning the variety of subjects that he spoke concerning, this was something that was amazing to them and wonderfully amazing to them. They were uh, in, wonderfully astonished. It wasn't some kind of a negative thing. And, of course, Jesus spoke with authority because he spoke with the authority being both the Son of God and God the Son. I want you to notice uh, further from these concluding four verses of Jesus' sermon that despite all of the ooing and the aahing of the congregation after he was done, he knew what their reaction was to the sermon that he had uh, taught. Jesus, like any Bible teacher, knew two things about his audience. What any Bible teacher knows about his audience 2,000 years ago, 400 years ago, right into the city of Modesto today or around the world. Every Bible teacher knows these two things about uh, their audience. First, that everyone, and this is what Jesus knew, that everyone in attendance that day heard his sermon. And second, that following the sermon, the congregation would then depart, and upon departing, it would firmly divide itself into two groups, the first group being those who were content to have been at the event, uh, content to have merely heard the sermon and the teaching, but they had no intention at all of changing a single thing in their life as a result of the sermon that they had just heard. And then a second group departing who not only had heard the message, but now was eager to obey the teaching that Jesus had given and put his teaching into practice within their life. And thus, as Jesus closes this sermon in verses 24, 25, 26, and 27, knowing that this is just about to occur within that congregation, in closing this sermon, he proceeds to tell each one of those groups their future. Notice he speaks of two different kinds of builders. The first builder built his house upon the rock, he tells us in verse 24. The second builder built his house upon the sand. And the simple fact of the matter is that every single person in life is building. As the old saying goes, to live is to build. Every single human being in the world is building. We have and we recognize this as a society, we'll often say of someone who's doing well in life, we'll say, wow, they have really built quite a life for themselves, haven't they? It's the same imagery. We understand that everyone is building something in life by living their life. There's that recognition that to live is to build. Every one of us in this room this morning is building a house, so to speak. We are building a context around our lives in which we live and in which we're going to spend our lives. Nobody escapes that. 
Everybody is building something in terms of themselves and their immediate context. And what each of us does determine, however, is what foundation we build our lives on. And as a result, Jesus speaks of two foundations that a person may build their life upon. And the two foundations that he offers is the first foundation is rock, and the second foundation is sand. And he declares that the person who hears Jesus' teaching and then significantly obeys his teaching, they are building their lives on something that is rock solid. The one great characteristic of his or her life, of the one that chooses to be obedient to God's Word, is their building on something solid, and that's something that any disciple can do. Any Christian is able to uh, do this. It, we're not told that the person who built their house upon the rock, that they were super talented or that they were super gifted or that they were smarter than the average bear or that they possessed great physical strength or a supernatural, incredible, you know, determination that other Christians do not naturally possess in terms of obeying God's Word. Everybody can obey God's Word. Nobody's excluded from being able to build on that foundation. And so we're told that he built his life upon the rock just by living a life of simple obedience to God's Word, just one decision at a time. As I hit the decisions within my life and I ask myself, what does God say about this? What does the Bible say about this? And then I obey that, then I am progressively building my life upon something that is solid rock. Now, to build a foundation on rock or in rock is very, very hard work. It's a lot harder to put, uh, put a foundation in rock than it is to put a foundation or lay a foundation within sand. It's one thing to read about these two foundations, you've got one foundation that uh, uh, constitutes the rock, and then you've got another foundation that concerning uh, the sand. And here we are, we're in a wonderful, in the middle of summer here now, in a wonderful air-conditioned room. I'm not putting it down. I love it, by the way. It's one thing to read about laying a foundation in rock, and then it's another thing to actually do it. And in Luke chapter 6, verse 48, Jesus spoke uh, in this same imagery of div digging deep and laying the foundation on the rock. He said, he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. I remember many, many years ago now, 30-plus years ago, I used to run uh, a digger truck as a lineman uh, for Pacific Bell. And uh, sometimes uh, we as a crew would be called out to put a pole in somewhere, uh, and I was working in the Napa Valley at that time, somewhere on the valley floor, and if you, you could pull up with a whole load of, tr of poles and pull up on the valley floor and begin to dig holes. And uh, in the time that it would take you to dig a hole for the, the, the pole, put it in the ground, tamp it back into uh, its proper uh, tamping way that it was supposed to be according to code, and then put the number on the pole and make your way. You could do that somewhere between 15 and 30 minutes to accomplish that. 
Sometimes you'd be called to put a pole in uh, at a particular place, and you'd start to dig down, get about two feet down, and then all of a sudden you hit rock or some kind of uh, hard pan or something. That was a little bit harder to uh, manage, took a little longer. You'd break through or you'd work your way around it, get it into the ground, and, uh, and, but it was, it was a lot more work in order to accomplish it. And then sometimes they would send us up to a place called Lake Berryessa. Maybe some of you are familiar with it. Lake Berryessa in that area, the eastern hills of the Napa Valley are almost solid rock. And so they'd say, we want a pole here or we want an anchor here. And we'd go up there in, even with a digger truck, I mean, to try and get the depth and to break the rock and get some kind of a crack there and get the thing. And it would take a long time and it was a lot of work to put a pole in that rock. But once you got something dug deep enough, put that pole in, got a tamp back into its place, you left it and you knew that pole's not going anywhere because it has been planted in solid rock. And the point is, is that there may be some easier ways to live life in this fallen world that we live in as Christians, but on, only this one is built upon the rock. Only this life of obeying Jesus is built upon something solid, and only that foundation is going to be able to withstand the storms that all of us are going to face in life. It's just the way that life is this side of heaven. Now, the person who hears the sayings of Jesus but then fails to obey his instruction Jesus said he is building his life upon sand, something that's completely unstable. It's interesting, uh, when I, again, worked for the phone company, and one of the things that was miserable would be to try to plant a, a pole in dirt that was virtually sand. I mean, they would just constantly cave in and cave in and cave in and try and get the proper compaction was a difficult thing to do. But sand is notorious for being uh, something that's completely unstable. And here you have a person, and it may be you this morning, no intention of offending you needlessly. Offending you needfully, that's a different thing, but not needlessly. This person can be the nicest person in the world. It can be a person who is extraordinarily polite, a person who's very interested in the Word of God or talking about God or hearing about God, maybe even very, very knowledgeable in the Word of God, but they never let it penetrate the daily of their lives. It's a goofy thing how we can get, especially in the United States, where we begin to believe, especially after we walk with the Lord for a little while, we begin, begin to be convinced that our spirituality is measured by how much we know rather than how much of what we know we are putting into practice in our lives. And it's a very subtle deception that any of us can fall into. But here's the person, they don't let the Word of God penetrate their lives, and without obedience, they're building their life on a foundation of sand. And sometimes they are completely ignorant of it at the moment. That's why Jesus is giving the warning here. Maybe some of us are sitting here today and, and you're oblivious to the danger that you're in, and that's why we're studying it this morning. And so you look at this kind of person who is building their house on the sand. On the sand is the idea is that 
we don't really have to pay much attention to the foundation. We can get right on to building the rest of the house. And when somebody does that, you look at, look, you look at that person and you go, wow, look at how they're getting along in life. Look at how quickly they're progressing. I mean, look at how quickly he's able to build his life or her life, build their house, and get ahead in life without trying to honor all of these kind of holy restrictions of the Scriptures. And look at how his business is growing because he's able to cut corners and be dishonest, and he doesn't feel encumbered by the Word of God in any way. He feels no conviction about obeying it. And look at how quickly he's, he's uh, getting ahead, how much money he has, and how famous he has, how much attention he has, because he's willing to disobey and compromise God's Word whenever that Word requires some kind of sacrifice on his part in order to obey it. And Jesus makes the man, and this, this foolish builder makes the man that Jesus calls wise, the one who takes the time to build his life on the foundation. The foolish man makes the wise man look like a fool for being so careful to obey God's commandments. What you're wasting time here, this is so slow. I mean, you just got to do this, and, you know, it's the spirit of the age, and it's just the way these businesses have to operate now, and you just need to uh, do it this way, and yet God knows that whenever that's happening, it's very, very early in the progression. Never stops. Never stops with the building of a house or a life. The storms are always coming, always coming. Important to realize, I think, that there are only two foundations. You look at this, the broad diversity of mankind. There's so many different kinds of people living so many different kinds of life in the world today. And to the human eye, it looks like people are building their lives on a million different things. But from the vantage point of heaven, there are only two foundations. It's very, very simple from uh, God's perspective and there is the foundation of rock, the person who's made the Word of God, the foundation of their life, and then demonstrates it by obeying God's commandments, and then there is everything else. And every single one of us in this room is one of those two builders. Every one of us is building this morning either on rock or we are building on sand. Now, let's talk for a moment about these storms that Jesus mentions uh, at the end of his teaching here. And it's fascinating because when he talks about the storms here, it isn't like, okay, this person is not a Christian uh, or this person is a, a Christian who is disobedient to God's Word, and now he's going to talk about specific storms that come into that kind of life. He's not doing that. He's not differentiating. He's talking about common storms that come to the person who builds their life upon the rock or they build their life upon the sand. There are storms that come in life whether you are a Christian or you are not a Christian, whether you are obeying the Lord as a Christian or not obeying the Lord as Christian. We're not in heaven yet. And the Bible teaches that it, that it rains on the just and the unjust. There are storms in this life that are common to all people. And so 
he, uh, he talks about these common storms, and as he's laying things out here, uh, so far so good for the foolish builder. It looks like he's the wise man in, uh, in so far, disregarding God's commandments. He doesn't, see, doesn't seem to be costing him anything. Look at how fast he's moving ahead in life. Look at what he has. Look at the vacations he can go on. Look at his investments and what they're doing and all of these things that we, you know, we measure success and we look at, at, those, at all of those things, and, and it doesn't seem to have cost him anything to disregard uh, the word of the Lord. It's just saved him from a bunch of work, put him in the fast track, and, and he's not any worse for it. So the idea then is to begin to think even as a Christian, see, it doesn't really matter whether you obey God or not. But then, then the storm comes. And the storm always comes. The storms are common to every single human being in this life. Nobody escapes the storms. And you look at the strength with which Jesus describes the storms. The rain descended. The floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house. The idea is that the storms can come from above, they can come from below, they can come from all directions. How many of you know that? What a description of how the storms come in, above, below, and from all directions in life. Again, when I used to work for the phone company, and the final position that I had for them after alignment as I was a cable splicer uh, for a time, and as a cable splicer, Rain always meant overtime, mandatory uh, overtime. A flood was worse yet. I remember a flood hit Oakland when I was working, Emeryville to be specific, in that area over there. And I forget, we worked 72 hours straight to restore a cable that had gone out that was feeding a main commercial part of the city. Floods were not a good thing to have uh, happen. But the worst of all of them was at that time when so much of the plant was above ground was the wind when it followed rain or it followed a flood because the rain would then saturate the ground, then the wind would blow. You farmers know this about your orchards. The wind would blow and then these great eucalyptus trees, oak trees, redwoods would then fall down upon the power lines, upon the phone lines, and then knock everything out. So wind, uh, rain with wind, that just always meant mandatory overtime. You just waited for the phone call in the middle of the night knowing that it was coming. And so when Jesus is describing these storms, it's a way of describing storms that are bad and worse and then the very worst. And I want you to notice that these storms, again, common to both builders, common to both builders, the wise and the foolish, the saved and the unsaved. And some of those storms that are common to all people are physical storms, storms that hit us on a physical level uh, in, in our life. Some kind of an accident occurs within our life. That happens to uh, the, the just and the unjust. That, ha that happens just in life. There is illness. There is disease. This, these things are common to all people. There is pain, 
chronic pain. There is aging. There's the breaking down of this body. Nobody escapes these things if they live long enough. Then there's the storm of the approach of death, and death approaches every person from a little different angle in a little different way because all of us are at least a little different from every other person. Nobody sees or deals with the approach of death the exact same way as anybody else does because of the uniqueness of who we are. But everyone has to deal with it. And then there is death itself. There are emotional storms that we face in life. You have the crushing grief, indescribable grief. You can't put it into words of the tragic loss, the sudden loss of someone that we love so much in life, some terrible betrayal or event in our life that scars a person emotionally, that happens to the just and the unjust. Marriage problems where the actions and decisions of another spouse leave a person ravaged or some deep, deep trial having to do with a child. There are economic and financial upheavals in the uncertainty of the world that we live in. They are common to the just and the unjust. Things happen in businesses where that uh, it, when they occur and completely outside of our control and, and our jobs are now in jeopardy and it's going to rock our world. And that happens to the Christian, the non-Christian, the one who obeys God's Word, the one that doesn't obey God's Word. There are just storms in life. And it's part of what Jesus is saying here within the passage. Sometimes we get this idea that because I am a Christian and because by the grace of God I endeavor to live my life in a way in which uh, honors him and to bless him, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So we keep his commandments not as like some kind of foreign collection of laws that are off over here gathering dust. It's all obeyed in a personal relationship and as an expression of love towards God and how good he's been uh, to us. And sometimes when these storms come in for us, even as Christians, we can sometimes get, they can uh, cause us to begin to doubt God, doubt his love, doubt his, his power. But Jesus did warn us that this would be our portion, this side of heaven, it won't be our portion in heaven. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. And then with absolute candor, he said, in the world you will have tribulation. Sometimes I forget that. I need to be reminded of that. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I want you to notice that these two houses, these two lives, have two very different ends of the house uh, the first house, we're told that it did not fall. And then of the second house, we're told with just unmistakable uh, simplicity and clarity, we are told, and it fell. And it's just as simple as that. One stood firm, and the other ended up in a great ruin, a great heap. I think that every winter, not in the last uh, three winters, but typically in the winters in California when we get a lot of rain, 
I'm ready for one of those winters, by the way. I think all of us are, aren't we? But in a typical cycle, weather cycle for California, as if there's a typical weather cycle, look, I'm getting all lost in my head on all of this thing. But sometimes when you get those rains, and, they, and we got a couple of storms in this year that for a couple of cities in, in uh, Northern California, it was so much that it ended up flooding the cities. But I would always watch the news, and then you would, our eyes would be glued. They put it on the news because it's of interest to us. And you watch the flood, and then there is the house that is built near the river, and the river begins to take out the river bank, and then the camera continues to run. You can go on YouTube and watch all of these you want, you know. They're limited on TV in terms of the time, and you watch it, and you realize that house is going to fall. And so they film it, and all of a sudden it comes sliding right down the hill into a great heap. And you just sit there and you realize all of their photos are in there, all of their possessions are in there. A whole life has just slid down in some respects, slid down that hill or been washed away by that river. And the interesting thing, if you've ever been close to a house that's in that uh, kind of a situation and, and the water begins now to pull on it, the foundation begins to give way, the house groans. The noises that a house makes when it's being twisted into positions that it was never intended to be pushed uh, into, and it groans, and then it lets out this one final great groan, and then down it goes into the river and washed away. Sometimes in parts of the United States, it's such a big country, we have all of these different, like several countries all in one country, aren't we? All these different zones, but um, we're used to hurricanes. They don't really have hurricanes in Israel. They have floods. But hurricanes, and I was watching a documentary of uh, the aftermath of one of the hurricanes in the south in the United States, and they just showed this vast devastation in all directions. And yet, intermittent within all of the devastation were homes that remained completely intact related to uh, the storms. They were still standing. And you ask yourself, and it was the intention of the visual of the doc documentary to get you to ask yourself, well, why did they stand and all of the other houses were unable to stand in the face of the hurricane? And the simple answer of the documentary was because they were built to withstand a hurricane. They were deliberately built ahead of time to withstand a hurricane. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, that the way to build a life that will be able to withstand all of the storms that life dishes out in this fallen world is by living a simple life of obedience to God's Word. And I've witnessed it over and over again. I've been a pastor now for 30 years, 30-plus 30 years, actually. 30 years. But I've seen it happen. It's not about buildings. It's about lives. And there's the saint who's just lived a simple life of obedience to God's Word. They love the Lord. 
And when the storm hits them, it is hard. It is so hard. But their life does not fall apart. And their faith does not fail. And their confidence in God is not lost. And by living a life of daily obedience in the Christian life, they have laid a foundation in their life that is greater than any storm that they could face in life. And because of that, they are ready for the storm. They have a storm relationship with God and with God's Word. And they just do then in the storm what they have already been doing for long years in their life. They simply go on to the next decision and obey God and trust God. And their lives are just as Jesus said they would be. And they did not fall. And then there's the person who gets hit with a terrible storm in life and it catches them completely unprepared. You know, one of the saddest things, and I don't say this to hurt your heart if you are exactly in this place right now, because I'm going to give you hope in this situation. But one of the saddest things to watch is to watch a Christian who has frittered away months and years that were intended to build a foundation deep into God's Word, and then the storm comes, and I tell you, it always comes. We think we can build these financial margins, these relational margins, these protections that will keep them from coming close. You can't do that in life. There's no such life in this world. And then the storm comes and hits their life, and now they are desperately looking to establish a relationship with God that they failed to develop before the storm came. And it's a terrible and it's a hard thing to watch occur in a person's life. Now, God has grace in that situation, but it's a needless trial to go through, and it's a terrible trial to go through. It makes life so much harder than life already is. And, of course, we're here to help one another, no matter what situation that we find ourselves in. But it is an awful thing to watch when we cease talking about a house in our mind and we begin to think about uh, a life and the failure for a storm relationship with God and His Word to be developed before the storm. Let me close us now with just a couple of lessons um, uh, concerning the passage. The single great point that Jesus is driving home is the importance of obedience to His words. I had a woman write me a letter some time ago She's wonderful, by the way, and she lives in another state. And she was talking about this subject of obedience, and I won't get into all of the details, but she felt that obedience could be overemphasized. 
and uh, in fact uh, had talked with somebody about it, and they said, well, to talk about obedience is actually an expression of self-confidence. Well, you know, that's a way to look at it, but you can't be more wrong than to look at it that way. When we talk about obedience to the Word of God, we are never talking about obeying the Word of God in our own strength. We're talking about obeying it because God's Holy Spirit has given us a desire to obey it and then the power then to obey it. So it isn't a matter of works or a matter of determination or a matter of, um, you know, legalism or something like that. Every commandment that God gives us in His Word is for our good, and, and that's the way to look at that. I've never looked at, obeyed God's Word ever once and looked at it and said, well, that, you know, that kept me from some ultimate good in my life. It always protects me from something that God wants to protect me from, and then it leads me into something that I wouldn't otherwise experience, which is the greatest life a person uh, can live. And so the importance of obeying God's Word and that the words on, in this book, the words of this sermon, they won't do us any good if we memorize the whole Sermon on the Mount and don't obey it. You can memorize the Sermon on the Mount, and I can still be building my life on sand. It doesn't do us any good unless we obey the Word of God. And so he closes. He didn't need to do it this way, but he closed the sermon with this kind of strength so that we can ask ourselves this morning in the privacy of our own Heart. Which builder are you at this moment? Well, you see, you know, when I became a Christian 35 years ago, I, was, I obeyed. If he'd have told me to share the gospel with a telephone pole, I would have done it. But now, you know, after all this time, I've kind of fashioned a comfortable Christianity that pretty much works for me, and it doesn't seem to be doing any harm. And yeah, I cut corners and I disobey and I disregard and you know, but I don't know any Christian that takes all of this seriously. Be careful. You don't know what storm is coming in your life. And the importance here, I think, of him saying this is he must know that there is some perverse tendency in our life, and there is. It's called the flesh as Christians, that we have a tendency to slip into this kind of a life. And he's warning us against it because when the storms come, we will be in no place to withstand the storms. So Jesus isn't just talking to talk. He's not closing the sermon in this way to say, I wanted to just leave it heavy with him. He did it <clears throat> because he knows us and he knows how many of us apparently are willing to settle into a build my life upon sand relationship with God and he's trying to protect us ahead of time. 
And so to look at all this and say, well, yes, everybody knows this and everybody has heard this that's walked with God for two years or whatever, but it's not knowing, it is actually looking at that in the light of the condition of my Christian life right now, this morning, and then whatever change might need to occur as a result of that. The obedient, another purpose of all of this is to let the obedient Christian, no Christian is perfect. We all sin. We all fall short. Nobody's perfectly obedient. We just don't want to be deliberately disobeying His Word. But for the obedient Christian, the idea of this passage is to tell us that we, as we obey God's Word, we can live confidently, we can think confidently, we can believe confidently concerning our future in this world. One of the things that makes us rich in life is really overlooked by our culture, and it's a thing called peace. You can own the whole world. You can own vast amounts of money. You can have incredible power in life and not experience a moment's peace in life. But to know that I'm obeying God's Word, I haven't settled into building my life upon the sand, is one where we can look confidently toward the future, no matter what the storm might be, and the peace that is ours knowing that whatever comes tomorrow or next week or a year from now, my life will be able to withstand that, and God wants us to have that peace and that confidence concerning the future. He desires that to be a quality of our life, and that's one of the reasons he closes the sermon this way. If you sit here this morning and you uh, call yourself a Christian, and uh, perhaps even are, and you don't listen to the Word of God and then obey it, that's not the kind of a relationship that you have with God. Here's what you need to do. You need to settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in your life right now this morning before you leave this room, not just to prepare you for some storm that's coming, but because that is the response on our part that he is due. He has saved us. He has forgiven us. He has been so patient with us. He has been so gracious and good to us that this is the way that we can express our love and our worship toward Him. And so if you look and say, you know, I got my fire insurance, I went forward, I put my faith in Christ, but you know, I, and, I, and I believe in Him, I believe He's the Son of God, I believe that He died on the cross for my sins, He was buried, He rose again on the third day, but I live life on my terms, not God's terms. You need to settle the issue of Jesus' Lordship in your life. And I know all about that life. I was exposed. I believed that Jesus, I believed everything about the Bible, everything that was true about Jesus. I'd been raised for a period of my life in, in that my adolescence and then uh, chose to go out. I thought I could fashion a better life than the one that I had read there, or I never really gave it enough thought. I, I had my own ideas and my own what, so I, I went out and I began to do those things. And then the day came where I needed in 1980 to just settle that issue of his lordship. I don't know, I might have been born again at that moment. That's why I say, you know, talking about the fact you call yourself a Christian, I don't know that I was a Christian at that time. I know I'm a Christian now. That might be some relief to uh, you to realize your pastor uh, is a Christian. But to settle his 
the issue of his lordship. And I can't, I, I can't go over, and I have no intention of putting you in a headlock and poking you in the eyes and hitting you with a whip. This is between you and God. And you, you know what he's been to you, and you know what he deserves. And to just do that now, this morning, and he will meet with you there. And if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, you've never yet trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you need to do that this morning. And here's where your obedience starts. Somebody came to Jesus and said, what must I do to do the works of God? And the idea was in order to get into heaven. And he's got his pad and his pen, and he's getting ready to write. You know, you need to climb the Himalayas, and then you need to, you know, crawl all around downtown Modesto on your hands and your knees, and you need to whip yourself three times a day or whatever. He's, whatever Jesus is going to say, he's ready to do it. And Jesus said, here is the work of God, that you believe on him, that is Jesus, whom he, that is the Father, has sent. That's how you're saved, forgiven of your sins. The Holy Spirit comes into your life, makes you into an entirely different person. The confidence of heaven on the other side of this life, a faith in a foundation that can withstand any storm, all of that is just a prayer away, a decision away for you. And it comes by putting your faith in the Savior that pleases God the Father, the salvation that pleases heaven, putting your faith in Christ today. If you've never done that, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin the life that your maker has for you. He knows everything about you and loves you and wants a relationship with you. And that's how it can happen, through the forgiveness of your sins, which is the obstacle to a relationship with him at the moment for you. They would love to pray with you to begin that relationship today. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let's stand together, and we'll pray now. I just want us in a spirit of prayer this morning, just the adoration of our own heart toward God. How many of you know the truth of this passage that God really does build a foundation in our lives that can withstand the worst that this fallen world and the devil can throw at us. We know the truth of the passage, don't we? To the degree that we know it, well, that we know it. What a blessing. What a blessing to be able to live in this to experience this, to have this confidence concerning our future that Jesus wants us to have. And we bless you today, Father, for your word. They're not some demanding or some needless 
archaic set of laws in some gathering dust in some corner someplace. They are life to us. And we thank you for the wonder of the life that your word has led us into. And we thank you, Lord, for all of the benefits that are found in it. And we thank you specifically this morning for the foundation that it lays within our life, a foundation that is able to withstand the rain and the flood and the great winds that come against every life. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to build our lives on you and your word from the bottom of our hearts in this room today, Lord, as you watch and listen, we bless you and we thank you and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.